Our scripture reading this morning is from Exodus 1. We're beginning a new um, series this morning as we were drawing near to the uh, close of our first and second Peter series. The consistory discussed what would be good for the congregation and um, the series that rose to the top was Exodus because while it includes both the history and the instruction to a people long ago who are in many ways very different from us. It's also the instruction of God to the church and the the history of God with the church of long ago, which in many ways dwelt in a situation not unlike ours. We'll talk about that in a minute, but, um, but that's the reason that we're coming to Exodus, that we can see God's dealing with and his instruction uh, for a church long ago, but much like us, which demonstrates the power and the holiness and the triumph of God on behalf of his people. So looking at the first 14 verses of this book, Moses writes, These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher, all the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were faithful and increased greatly, or fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. And the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Amen. We'll stop there for the day. People of God beloved through Christ Jesus. This morning, we turn to a book that is filled with memorable stories. Moses... The plagues, the Red Sea, the wilderness, how many of us grew up hearing those stories from our fathers and mothers and grandparents. But these are not merely stories. They're true. They're historical accounts that reveal the faithfulness of God toward the people whom he loves. And more than that, this book is filled with images of Christ and of his church, which he came to establish. So as we enter and walk through this book, we need to do so carefully. Not merely nostalgically 
reviewing these stories that we heard as little children in Sunday school or around the dinner table. But savoring in these stories the magnificent insights we encounter about the nature of our God. Striving to see Christ and the power that he exercises on behalf of his people. And asking how this account would lead us to serve Christ. Now in this first section, the Lord provides an image of the church as it lives within the midst of an unbelieving world. That's the image that is portrayed by the reality that Israel was experiencing in Egypt. You recall the history of how Israel got into Egypt. It's the story of Joseph, hated by his jealous brothers who trapped him, sold him into slavery, abandoned him into the midst of a people who knew nothing of the Lord. In Egypt, Joseph was enslaved, he was imprisoned, he was mistreated, but then miraculously, he was raised up and set in a position over all of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh himself. God had showed Joseph how he was going to send a famine, and how that famine if nothing was done, would destroy Egypt and all the countries around it. And so God led Pharaoh to set this prisoner, this slave, over Egypt. And so through Joseph, God preserved Egypt and preserved all the nations around them, including his own family. By the end of Genesis, Joseph's brothers and their families and his father, all the descendants of Abraham and Isaac, We're living together in Egypt's Goshen Valley. That's where the book of Genesis ends. And it's kind of where Exodus begins. Kind of, because between those two books pass a number of years. Hundreds of years, in fact. And things have changed. When they arrived in Egypt under Joseph's care, they numbered about 70 people. Not a big group. Really just an extended family. And yet God would bless this small group and he would restore them and he would embrace them as his own. And at the end, he would use them to bless the whole world. That's where we are and where we're going. But in this first text, we see how God's people arise. They, they, they multiply and thrive between opposing forces. And that's our first text. Take note of the background that Moses gives us in the first six verses. Moses recounts for us who all came down to Egypt. He names all the sons of Jacob, great-grandsons of Abraham. And he notes that Joseph was already there in Egypt. Now, of course, Joseph was the family's meal ticket. The king of Egypt, Pharaoh... He felt that his nation was deeply indebted to Joseph. So when Joseph sought permission to bring his family down to Egypt, Pharaoh not only gave him permission for this immigration, he gave him the best of the land. However, the time came when Joseph died, along with his brothers and their children. And yet Israel remained in Egypt, although living in a land not their own. They refused to assimilate, refused to become part of Egypt. They lived within the boundaries of Egypt, but as a separate people, with a different language, with a different religion, with different customs. And that separation between Egypt and Israel within its borders, that remained even 
as the centuries carried on. And so it was that the people of Egypt began to forget over the passing of time why this nation had come to live among them. The story of Joseph and how God saved Egypt through him faded from their memory. However, God's memory never fades. Although they remained in Egypt, God prospered them in that foreign land. That's the first thing we see. He prospered them in that foreign land. Verse 7 describes how God prospered his people, and it uses four verbs that are telling. First of all, he says they were faithful or fruitful. God planted them in Egypt, and there they brought forth a crop of children, and it was an abundant crop. They had each generation had multitudes of large families that filled the Goshen Valley and and likely spread beyond it. They increased greatly, says Moses. The word there is the word you use to indicate a swarm. If you were talking about a swarm of gnats, that's what you would would use. If you uh, disturbed an anthill and they swarmed out, that's the word you would use. That indicates how this people had multiplied so greatly they were covering the land. They multiplied. They didn't just increase a little bit. They exploded, making them a multitude. And they grew exceedingly strong. In the Hebrew, the the Hebrew word for very is used twice there. There's a strong emphasis on how abundantly great God had made his people. But those four verbs don't just show us how great they were. They show us how great God is. Back in... Genesis 17, the Lord promised Abraham, saying, I will make my covenant between me and you, and you will multiply greatly. And then in verse 6, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And then likewise to Isaac in Genesis uh, 26, the Lord says, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And again to Jacob in Genesis 28. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. And that's precisely what God was doing to his people in Egypt. Just what he promised Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. That he would multiply them. That he would spread them. That they would would overspread like the dust of the earth or the stars of the heaven. So he was doing to his people even in this foreign land. And it wasn't just in response to his promises to the forefathers. What he was doing was fulfilling in Israel what he had commanded for his people all. At the very beginning in Genesis 1, we're told that God said, Let let us make man in our image after our likeness and let let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heaven and the livestock, etc. He wanted them to fill the earth and subdue it. So he says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. He wants his image bearers to fill the earth and to exercise dominion on his behalf. And that's what he's beginning to do through his people in Egypt. In fact, the promises that he gave to Abraham and 
Isaac and Jacob, the verbs that he used to describe what would happen to the people as they began taking up the calling of mankind itself, those are the very verbs that Moses uses in Exodus 7. He wants us to see that just as God promised, that's what he's doing. So that just as God commanded, that's what we may do. Now, brothers and sisters, that is significant because it teaches us what to expect. You see, we too are God's covenant people. God is the one who brought us here, set us in this place, and yet we're not of this place. We're in America. Many of you are of Dutch descent. But that's not what defines you. If you are in Christ, what defines you is that you are a child of the covenant. You are the offspring of Abraham. You are a new creation in Christ. That's who you are. That's what makes you unique. And the promises given to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, those promises have been given to you. Namely, I will be your God, he says, and you will be my people. And I will make you a multitude. And why will he make you a multitude? So that you can grow and fill the earth and subdue it and exercise dominion over it. And so what he did to Israel in Egypt is what we ought to expect him to do to us today in America. Which is to say he will remember us. He will fulfill his promises toward us. He will multiply us in some degree by the children within us, among us. In another degree by the the elect whom he will gather to us. But God is the one who is multiplying. God is the one who is providing. God is the one who is prospering us in this foreign land. We need to remember that. We need to remember that because as we're going to see in just a moment, life in a foreign land is hard. There are times we struggle. Young people, there are times, many times, where we feel out of place. We see the expectations that are laid upon us at church. This is who you are. This is how you are to live. And then we see how our friends live. We see how our peers live. We see how others uh, of our generation with whom we work, perhaps with whom we go to school, who we see on the internet and on our phones. We see how they live and what defines them and And there's a radical disjunction between what we see there and what we see here. And that is as it should be. Because you are different. You're not of them. You're of Him. And as you live as those who are of Him, God prospers you. God grows you. Not as Americans, not as Egyptians, but as... Christians, as the people of God's covenant, that's what we should expect. That's who we are. However, despite the way in which they were prospered, life for God's people in Egypt was not easy. Verse 8 speaks of a new king, a king who was ignorant of the history of God's people in Egypt. He knew nothing 
of Joseph, knew nothing of the famine, neither knew nor cared how God had blessed Egypt through them. He had no warm feelings toward Israel at all. Now, there's a number of reasons that could be attributed to this. It's a fascinating study. If you read various biblical scholars on the topic, some suspect that this was during a particular period in history, in the, the history of Egypt, when a different ethnic group came into power over Egypt, which makes sense of why they wouldn't remember Joseph and his, uh, his deliverance, God's deliverance through him. Others suggest that it's simply because of the way history was written in Egypt. They would have known of the famine in which Joseph was active, but Joseph wouldn't have been mentioned. It would have all been attributed to the Pharaoh of that age. And so what's not written is, of course, soon forgotten. But that's immaterial. What's important is that by this time in history, Joseph and that history and the mercy of God upon Egypt was forgotten. And so the king, he looks down in the Goshen Valley and he sees what? He sees a group of foreigners who live in the midst of Egypt. He sees a people who are strong and mighty and prosperous and, and immense. And they speak differently. They dress differently. They act differently. They are foreign. A foreign threat. And that leads us to see how God's enemies persecute them as a foreign threat. Listen to the warning the king speaks to his people. Verse 9, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Now the king calls Israel there a threat. First, because of their size. They are too many for us. They're too big to ignore. They keep growing. Pretty soon they're going to overspread the land and they're too mighty. He recognizes that that many people, pretty hard to deal with, pretty hard to subdue. And they're foreigners. They don't regard themselves as Egyptians. We don't regard them as Egyptians either. And that's a danger. That's a danger because what if our enemies manage to co-opt them as a force for their power? All of a sudden, we've got this massive enemy within our borders. We'd be fighting a, a, a war on both sides, both from within and from without. But that's not all. There's a danger aspect, and that's part of what's driving the king. But there's also, look at the very end of what he says there. Lest they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Now, doesn't that seem a bit strange? I mean, if there are foreign people in your midst and that makes them a threat, wouldn't you want them to escape? Wouldn't you want them to go away? Wouldn't you be sort of packing their bags for them? The fact that Part of his concern is that they would escape indicates to us not only was Israel a threat, they were also a commodity. Perhaps because of the work they did for Egypt. Perhaps because of the crops and the livestock they raised for Egypt. In other words, maybe this was a greed motive. We don't want to lose what we're getting from Israel. Or perhaps it was more 
nefarious. Perhaps they didn't want Israel to leave so much as to be destroyed. They had grown to hate Israel, to deeply despise them. That might have been it. We're not sure. We're not told the motive of Pharaoh. We simply know that he and his people hated Israel, but they didn't want them to escape either. And whether knowingly or not, that makes Egypt a servant of Satan. The book of Genesis is in many ways the tale of two people. At the start of our current predicament, when Adam plunged us into sin, God promised that he would set enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And from that point on, we see these two lines within humanity. Those who are of the covenant, those who are of the Lord, those who seek to serve him, and those who serve only the flesh, the world, and the devil. At the other end of the Bible, Revelation 12 tells us that Satan and those who seek him have been seeking throughout history to destroy the line of the woman because they understand that ultimately that line culminates in an offspring of Eve, a child of Eve who will crush the serpent's head, who will destroy the root of the evil among us. And so Satan has been waiting to devour that child. He has been striving throughout history to destroy the coming one. And whether knowingly or not, Egypt is serving him. Seeking to destroy the line of the promised son. That's why they don't drive him out. They don't exile them from the land. They don't send them back to Canaan, no. They set taskmasters over them to afflict them. They're going to humble God's people. They're going to demoralize them. They're going to make them weak and ultimately they want to destroy them. And that, my friends, is what we can expect. Israel here is a type of the church to come, an image of the church today. Jesus told us in John 15, If the world hates you, Know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, the world hates you. And therefore we should expect that the world will not love us. It will instead regard us as a threat. The people of this world almost immediately forget how the people of God have blessed them. Look at our own nation. We live in an anomaly, by the way. And that's a nation that was begun as a Christian nation. Every one of the colonies which began this nation required those who served in office, those who served as legislators or executives or as judges, to be professing Christians. They built their laws on the Bible, on the Word of God. It was because 
of the Christian profession of our forefathers in this land and because of their adherence to God's word that we have all of the freedoms and the blessings and the prosperity that this land knows today. But time has passed, hasn't it? And new leaders, new kings have arisen and they don't remember how God has blessed us in the past and how it was through the servants of God that we obtained these blessings. And so they hate, they despise those who reflect Christ, those who serve the true and living God whom they hate. We should expect that. And we should expect that they don't just want to kick us out, they want to afflict us, they want to enslave us, they want to destroy us because they serve the one who failed to prevent the coming of the Son, but who now wages against the offspring, who wages war against those who serve the Son. And so today, they seek to enslave the people of God. Some places they enslave God's people physically. We have brothers and sisters throughout Africa and the Middle East who serve as slaves to unbelieving people simply because they dare to profess Christ. That's what makes them slaves. You live in a Muslim country, you are regarded as property to be used for the well-being of Muslims because you dare to confess Christ. Here they don't physically enslave us, but they still seek to enslave us. You see, that's what they do when they seek to enculturate our children through government education and through social media and through the pressure they exert on us socially to become like them. They want to enslave us with the same chains that bind them. They want to enslave us with those chains that would lead us to deny the Lord. And we, brothers and sisters, must not allow those particular chains. Because that's a slavery that will lead us to become like them. The irony, however, is that the more God's enemies afflict, the more God himself prospers. Our third point is very brief, but extremely important. We find it in just part of verse 12. But there we see how God rewards his people amidst their afflictions. Now this verse, the start of it, includes a fairly interesting grammatical construction. It's a comparison of degree. Essentially showing the more A is done, the more B occurs, right? But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. You get what's being said there. Pharaoh commands his people, we need to oppress these people, we need to afflict them, we need to assure that that they're humbled. They need to know their place. They need to be prevented from thinking that they can stand against us, that they're as good as us. But instead of shrinking them, instead of humbling them, instead of breaking them, they grow bigger. They grow outwardly as well. They spread. No matter what 
Egypt strove to do, no matter what the forces of darkness attempted, God demonstrated that He is greater, that His power is more, that His blessing is unable to be thwarted. Again, there's a crucial lesson in that for us. Just before His arrest, Jesus prayed for us, a prayer that is recorded in John 17. And there he prayed to the Father, not that we might be removed from the world. It's interesting. Explicitly, he says, I pray for these, not that you might remove them from the world, but rather, he says, that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Right? Keep them there, but preserve them, sanctify them, bless them in your truth, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. So he doesn't want us to be removed from the world. He wants us to be preserved within the world. He wants us to be sanctified within the world. He wants us to be unified within the world. All the things that drive the world nuts about us, Jesus prayed would be true of us. That we would be multiplied, that we would be distinct, that we would be united in the truth of God and the image of Christ. The very things that excite the world's wrath, Jesus prayed would be multiplied for us. And we need to expect that that prayer will be answered. Even if persecution radically increases for us, we can expect that God will not allow it to destroy us. In fact, the history of the church demonstrates that the more the world persecutes, the more the church grows. The more the world represses, the more the church expresses the confession of Christ. So expect God's blessing in the midst of your affliction. Because even now, Jesus is praying for you. And even in the worst of your persecution, your loving Father will be providing In both bad times and good, our God remains on the throne. And it's our calling, it's our essential calling to remind each other of that. No matter what the affliction God's people are experiencing, whether it's an organized persecution by the world, or as more often happens right now for us, Persecution in the workplace because we insist on following Christ rather than the traditions and rules of men. Or the brokenness and hurt of sickness and disease. Or division within the people of your life because you're striving to turn away from your old ways and unto Christ. And that can be deeply discouraging, deeply difficult for us. To undergo that hardship, that pain, that persecution. But that's where we need each other. Our temptation when we're enduring those hard times, those trials, those difficulties is to withdraw. To hide, to lick our own wounds. But that's when we most need the body of Christ. That's when we most need to be unified. That's when we need those reminders that God is still on the throne. That God is going to keep providing, prospering, caring for you. 
That's our calling with regard to one another. That's, that's what the elders are called to do. Going and, and reminding the people who are being persecuted, who are suffering, who are struggling, that God is with them. But not just the elders. That's all our calling. And yet, not only is that our calling, that's our need. Because the world is not happy when God continues to bless us. Seeing how God rewards, seeing how God's people continue to prosper, the world fears. And so the last thing we see here is how God's enemies revile them, hate them, in their fear. See, Egypt recognized that even though they had enslaved Israel, even though they had persecuted them and sought to bring them low, God was continuing to bless them. And they suddenly had that feeling you get when when you're confronted by a problem that grows exponentially and you can't seem to fix it. You know what I'm talking about. You're on that long drive in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of the night, and suddenly the transmission starts making noise. Or you go to get the mail on some bright sunny morning and there's an unexpected letter from the IRS. It's that sinking feeling that says, I think the day just turned really bad. They saw God bless those whom they sought to destroy, and Egypt was in awe. And think about it, from Egypt's perspective, nothing could have been worse. Here was this people that were living among them, that were large, that were a threat. They sought to crush them. They sought to begin to destroy them. They wanted to humble this people to the dust. And they only grew stronger. Only now they have a reason to dislike Egypt. Really, their plan couldn't have gone worse. So how does Egypt respond? Well, they respond harshly. They ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. And verse 14 shows us how. They gave them the worst jobs in all of Egypt. They made them bake bricks. They made them work out in the hot sun, toiling to build store cities. They made them work in the fields and muck out the irrigation troughs. Basically, If there was a dirty job, if there was a hard job, if there was an exhausting or a dangerous job, you find an Israelite and you make him do it harder and faster and longer. They were determined to humble Israel or destroy them. Either would work. Now ask yourself, where in all of that, where in all of that is Christ? Where is our merciful God as his now numerous people are so painfully attacked? He's on the throne. Sovereign even over all of this. Even as his people are subjected to bitter enslavement, our triune God is ruling over all of heaven and earth. He is using that harsh treatment to prepare His people, showing them the misery of life in a fallen world, causing them to long for something better, equipping them for life in eternity. The Bible speaks often about facing such hardship. For instance, Paul, who knew much of hardship in life, tells us in Romans 5, That we should rejoice in our suffering because when we suffer, we learn to endure by trusting God. And when we gain endurance, we learn, we gain Christian character filled with hope. And as we gain that hope, we learn that God is trustworthy because He fulfills the hope that He's given us. Or again, James 1 
James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. How can we count it joy when we meet trials? Well, we can count it joy. Because through those trials and that testing, God produces in us a steadfast faith. And that steadfast faith, that faith with staying power, is what causes us to become perfect and complete and equipped for life in eternity. So again, where is Christ in the midst of suffering? He's right there with us. He was with Israel in the midst of Egypt, in the midst of their enslavement. He was strengthening them. He was prospering them. He was caring for them. And He was equipping them for all that was to come. Beloved, this is a call to endure all things in Christ, with our eye upon Christ. Remember, this world does hate you. And afflict you. But they do so because they see in you the character of your heavenly father. Their hatred, their persecution, their slander is aimed not at you but at him. They can't reach him so they aim at you. And they'll have to answer for that. So pity them. And pray for them. And remember that God himself is using their mistreatment to strengthen you and to bless you. So build one another up in the midst of it. Encourage one another when you're struggling. Pray for each other. Share with each other. Don't try to just man up and deal with it yourself. Ask for prayer. Pour out your hardship upon one another. And when your brother or your sister does that, weep with them. Embrace them. And then lead them before the throne of grace by praying for them in their presence. That they might be reminded that the Lord knows, the Lord sees. And even as you're praying for them, so Christ right that instant is praying for them at the side of the Father. See, that is where Christ is found when the church is afflicted. He is there among his people working through His people as they strengthen and encourage one another. He is found in our encouraging words and our loving embrace. He is found in the meal that you provide and the time that you spend together. He is found in the helping hand that you bring and the the burden that you lift and the meal that you share. Christ is found wherever the body of Christ reaches out to lift up those who are afflicted among them and to bring them to the throne of grace. And he will bless his people abundantly as they draw near to him. Thus it was in Egypt as Israel was afflicted. Thus it was today in every place where the church is afflicted. God's people arise and abide between opposing forces. Satan seeking to attack and destroy. But God always invariably blessing, comforting, strengthening without fail. So look to Him. Trust in Him. And even in the midst of your affliction, give Him the glory. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we desperately need Your help. For even now, even in this land of plenty and of peace... We experience the hardship and the suffering and the pain of life in a fallen world and of the affliction of the evil one. We need 
your strength, your grace, your help to deliver us. We pray that you would not only give us that, but enable us to encourage each other so that your love and mercy and faithfulness might be experienced through us. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.